Good morning. My name is Jeremy Holtzworth. Nice to see everyone this morning. Happy July. And I'm going to have the privilege of reading scripture. And there are two passages. Turn to Matthew 6 and Mark 10. We're going to start with the Mark 10 passage. It's Mark 10, 17 to 22. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Mark ten seventeen. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And let's flip over to Matthew 6. Another really easy passage to read. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Please be seated and take a minute to reflect on God's word. It feels right that people from Philadelphia are visiting our town on July 4th weekend. Somehow there's something just perfect about that. Glad you all are all here. We're in a summer series called Conversations with Jesus. So we're just looking at different passages in the gospel and how people intersected Jesus. We're examining their conversation, seeing what they learn about Jesus, seeing what they learn about themselves, and then seeing what we might learn about ourselves. And here in John chapter 10, we have a very interesting encounter. If you had been reading through the gospel of Mark, when you arrived at chapter 10, verse 17 you would immediately recognize the scenario. Let's read it again. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus and his disciples, a man ran up and knelt before him. You would recognize the scenario because this has happened so many times already in the Gospel of Mark. It happens in chapter 1. A leper comes to Jesus, kneels before Jesus, and he is healed. He's blessed by Jesus. 
Mark chapter 2, a paralytic, many of you know this story, he's brought by his friends, he's lowered through a roof, and he meets Jesus, he's blessed by Jesus, his sins are forgiven, and he walks away. In Mark chapter 5, we saw this last week, uh, the demoniac, and the guy's name is Legion, he comes running towards Jesus and, and screaming basically for help, and he is healed. And then Jesus comes to, to Jairus and the bleeding woman in Mark chapter 5, and Jairus' daughter lives, and the bleeding woman, her bleeding stops. And then in Mark chapter 7, a woman comes begging for the health of her daughter, and her daughter is healed. So each one, uh, the people are running towards Jesus. They're, they're kneeling before Jesus. They're pleading for Jesus. And, and every time Jesus meets their need, and they're healed or blessed in their encounter. But when you read here in Mark chapter ten seventeen, you're reading about a man who comes running. He comes kneeling before Jesus. And even though you've been conditioned to anticipate the outcome, this has a very surprising ending. Of all the people who come and fall at Jesus' feet, this man has left worse than he came. So you're, you're caught off guard. This is not how it's normally supposed to be. And so we all want to lean in and listen to this particular conversation and see what happens. The, the man seems to have so many positive qualities. He, he seems to get so close to the kingdom of God, and yet he walks away. And so I just want to make some observations here, and then we can learn from this particular encounter. First of all, what we know about this man you, you see it probably in the title of your Bibles. He's the, the rich young ruler. That's probably at the beginning of verse 17. We know he's rich from verse 22. He has great possessions. He's young. We read that in a, another story in Matthew 19. He's a young man. He's probably the age of Jesus. And he's a ruler. We learn that in Mark 8 or Luke 18. He's probably a synagogue ruler. He's, he's a religious man. He's He's young, but he still is somebody who knows a lot about the scriptures, and he's a ruler in the synagogue. So this is Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. And, of course, from the world's perspective, we understand that title. This rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus. And, of course, the title fits until you really start turning it over in your mind, and you think, what is this encounter really like in reality? This, this rich young ruler having this uh, encounter with Jesus. And then as you think about it, you understand that this is really not an accurate picture. But, but really there's a massive contrast happening here. And it's between Jesus and this rich young ruler. The rich young ruler in the world's eyes meets Jesus who, from Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. By Jesus, all things were created, whether things on heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, throne, principalities, authorities, or even the rich young ruler is created by Jesus. Jesus is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, Jesus has supremacy. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. 
So Jesus meets a man that's nearly his same age. And now we think, well, who's rich, the rich young ruler in reality? It's Jesus. It's not this man. This encounter, as I tried to picture it, is like a plankton. You know what a plankton is? It's this tiny little um, microscopic organism in the sea that you can't see with the naked eye. It's, it's less than one micron in length. And it's like this rich young ruler is like the plankton. And it swims up next to a 100-foot-long, 20-ton blue whale. That's, that's as close as analogy as I can get. The rich young ruler in the world's eyes is a plankton. And he swims up next to this giant blue whale. And you can't even appreciate the contrast. And what's incredible is that all the, the mass and the glory and the wealth of God gets shrunk down into the size of a plankton so God could meet us face to face. That's amazing. You could spend a whole lifetime just trying to imagine how you shrink that kind of mass into a plankton so it looks like two people that are nearly the same age are actually meeting each other. But what we know is really there's a tremendous contrast happening here. So that's what we know about this man. What we learn about him from Mark is that he comes with a sense of urgency. He comes with a sense of humility. He's, he's running to Jesus. There's some sense of urgency for him, and there's a humility. He's a ruler. He's probably used to standing on stage in the synagogue. But when he comes to Jesus, he, he falls to his knees. Even though he had all these advantages, he has some sense that something's missing in his soul. And as a religious man, he's no doubt familiar with the words from the wise man in Ecclesiastes that says this, I have increased in wisdom and knowledge more than anyone. And I've learned this. This is a chasing after the wind. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. So maybe the, the rich young ruler has arrived at this place that the wise man of Ecclesiastes arrived, and he says, he's right. I, di- I did get it all, but still there's some kind of hole in my soul. And so he's running to Jesus. We learn that he's running to the right person. He's running to Jesus. We learn that he's asking the right questions. He's asking about eternal life. So here's a man who knows he's got something missing in his soul. He's choosing the right person to run to. He's asking the right question. This guy seems like a, a great prospect for the kingdom of God. You might call this in the, in the sales world, he's a hot prospect. He's got the right sort of countenance. He's got the right internal makeup to say, I've got something that's missing. I'm running to the right person. I'm asking the right questions. I mean, how often do you encounter a person with this kind of makeup? He appears to be like the good soil. Remember that in the parable of the sower? This man looks like good soil. And it seems like practically anyone can get him to make a decision to believe in Jesus. It just seems like anyone could get this guy to make a decision to believe in Jesus. 
yet he walks away. And I'm wondering, how does Jesus, of all people, let this guy slip away? He's such a hot prospect. Almost anybody can get him into the kingdom of God. And how does Jesus somehow miss it? I mean, you want to you want to ask Jesus, let's go back to the refresher course, Jesus, on Evangelism 101. I mean, you miss this hot prospect. And one crucial thing we learn from Jesus in this conversation is that Jesus isn't interested in de- decision evangelism. What I mean by that is, I walk down an aisle, I, I sign a card, I say a prayer, and I decide to make Jesus my Savior. That's not what Jesus is interested in. Jesus isn't interested in decision evangelism. He's interested in discipleship evangelism. Discipleship evangelism, we know it, Matthew 28. He says this in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, to the disciples, go and make decisions. No. No, he says, go and make disciples. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who are all in, people who are going to be my disciples. In Mark chapter 8, just two two chapters before, Peter makes this great proclamation in front of the rest of the disciples. You are the Christ. And as soon as that comes out of Peter's mouth, Jesus doesn't turn to him and say, you got it, Peter, you're in. Great decision. No, as soon as Peter recognizes Jesus, he calls a huddle. And he says, okay, now now you've got the right information here, but I want you to make sure you understand information isn't enough. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. See, it's not just about a decision. It's a decision that leads somewhere to help you know if you're really a disciple. And that somewhere is through self-denial. Jesus is looking in Mark chapter 8 at this tw- these 12 group of young men following after him. And he states it clearly. If anyone wants to be my disciple, what's required is self-denial. Discipleship evangelism requires people to make a decision, but also to deny themselves. And my concern for many people, and perhaps for some of you, is that you were erroneously led to believe that all you needed to do for eternal life is make a decision. And somewhere in your past, you... Said a prayer at VBS. You got personally moved. Like this rich young ruler that he was personally moved. Somebody intersected you and got you to make a decision. Sign a card. Say a prayer. And of course that's, that's a, I don't want to say that in a great start. But that's not the whole thing. The whole thing is becoming a disciple. And Jesus is stating clearly he's looking for people who are disciples, not people who have just made decisions. And it's my guess, just a guess, that the rich young ruler could have been talked into a decision. That's my guess. But he couldn't get talked into discipleship. Why? He wasn't interested in self-denial. 
And you learn that at the end of the story. If it's for, it's, if, if I'm in by making a decision, I'm in. But, oh, it requires self-denial. Oh, I'm not in that much. Ask anyone who's ever been on a diet. Making a decision, easy. Self-denial, much more difficult. You ever find out when you're on a diet, all the commercials are about food? I mean, where's the auto commercial or something? So Jesus wants to help this rich young ruler. And he uses this conversation to bring clarity. He wants to bring clarity about his own identity to this man. He wants to bring clarity to this man about his identity. Does that make sense? Jesus is trying to make sure this man understands he knows who Jesus is. He's trying to make sure this young man knows who this young man is. And so first we read in, in verse 17, he's asking, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has this unusual response. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And the first thing Jesus wants to clarify here is with this with this question is that there's only two options about Jesus's identity. If if Jesus is just a teacher then he's a fallen sinful teacher like everybody else and he shouldn't be called good because only God is good. But if he is actually a good teacher then he wants this man to know I'm much more than just a teacher. I'm actually God in the flesh. See, I can only be one of these two things. I can be a teacher, just like Paul Phillips might be teaching from the pulpit today, but he's not good like God. He's just a fallen, sinful person. You might learn something from him. But if he's the good teacher, he's the God-man. He's much more than just a teacher. He's actually God in the flesh. So before Jesus answers any questions about eternity, he first wants to clarify his identity. He wants to make sure the young man understands, and of course he wants to make sure that we understand there's only one person who can ask questions about eternity, to answer questions about eternity. That's an eternal person. So he wants the young man to make sure he understands, do you know who you're really talking to? And Jesus, in just that little question, he he creates a, a clear identity for himself for this young man. Second thing Jesus wants to do is to, to bring clarity to this man about this man. It's very clear from this conversation the man doesn't know himself. He, he has no idea who he is. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. I mean, this man, he's a synagogue ruler. So Jesus is going to bring out the commandments to help this man. And he lists these uh, several of these commandments. We call them the second table of the law. They're the first table of the law are all about your vertical relationship with God. The second table are all about your relationships with mankind. And so he brings out this second table that this man would been, have been very familiar with. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not fraud, defraud and honor your father and mother. The man listens to this and 
Check. Check, check. Check. Would you, Jesus, I'm perfect. I mean, I'm the perfect child. I'm the perfect spouse. I'm the perfect neighbor. I'm the perfect worse person. I'm the perfect uh, co-worker. I, I've never done anything to my friends that have been bad. I'm checking all these boxes. And this is what I find so interesting. This man assigns himself an identity he doesn't actually have. And people do this all the time. He's living in a false narrative. He's living in a false world. It's a world that he's created in his mind. And when you ask him about it, he tells you exactly what his world is like. The man has a false narrative about himself circling through his mind. He's actively living in this story, which only exists in his mind. And he's much more righteous than he really is. That's how most false narratives go. That you're actually more, much more righteous than you really are. Somehow the rich young ruler has woven together the story that he, he's good enough to please God. He deserves eternal life. He's not living in reality. Now, we're not surprised by that because when sin entered the world, it has a blinding effect. And one of those results is a deep-seated belief that you're okay. Or that at least you're good enough. You're good enough to earn eternal life rather than inherit eternal life. Now, when you would talk to somebody and they say, I'm the perfect spouse, I'm the perfect child, I'm the perfect neighbor, I'm the perfect... What what would you say? How would you respond? I love Jesus' response. This has probably been very different than my response at this point. I might have called this man a fool. I might have thrown up my hands and walked away. But what does it say? Verse 21. Jesus looks at him, he loves him, and then he tells him the truth. Jesus looks at him in the eye, and without saying anything, he's saying, I love you. I would have looked at the man and said, you are a fool. Even if I wouldn't have said it out loud, that's what I would have been thinking. And if I'm thinking that, it's coming out of my pores somehow that that person can pick up on. So Jesus looks at him, loves him, and then he tells him the truth. Now, when I join the Young Life staff and you're trying to learn the different parts of Young Life, you have to learn how to lead singing. And you don't have to be a great singer, thankfully. You just have to be a great leader. Some of you know this. Austin will know this. And so what the, my, my leader told me is said, Paul, when you, when you have a, a, a living room full of 50 people or you're at Windy Gap with 500 people, this is how you need to do it. You need to look at the people in their eyes as you're helping them sing. You need to have your hands out at some point. And when you do, I want you to think of yourself hugging these people. Every kid in the room, you're looking at them and you're hugging them. You're pleading for them to know Christ. You're saying, I love you. And then when it's done, pick up your Bible, stand in front of them and tell them the truth about themselves and Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's looking at this man. And even though he's a plankton, 
He looks at the man and says, I love you. I came for people just like you. And I can't wait to help you see yourself hoping you can get out of this false narrative and and really come into reality about who you are and about who I am. And so this is Jesus' response. He pulls out the first part of the law. And he doesn't ask the question, do you have any other gods before me? He just identifies the God right away, money, possessions. Jesus shines this terrifying light of truth into the rich man's soul. And he uncovers that the rich man was possessed by his possessions. Wealth had blinded the man from seeing Jesus. Wealth had blinded the man from seeing himself. And we're not surprised. Why? Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 6. Remember, he's talking about you can't, you can't have two masters. But he has this little insert, these few little lines, verse 22 and 23 of chapter 6 in Matthew. If your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then you live in the dark. In other words, and listen carefully here. If this one segment of your life is off, how you think about your wealth, your whole life can be off. Now, Jesus doesn't say this about other things. But there's something about the power of your possessions that distorts the rest of your reality. And so this man, he thinks he's perfect in every other relationship. And why he stared his possession so long, he's gone blind. He stared at his stuff so long, he can no longer see himself. It's a sad reality. So verse 22, the rich man goes away sorrowful. He leaves Jesus in worse condition than he came. The conversation in Mark 10 is like the conversation between the 200-ton, 100-foot blue whale. The plankton comes swimming up next to him. And the blue whale invites him into his reality. You can have all of this weight, all of this inheritance. It it can all be yours. And the plankton looks at what he has and says, I've got to keep hold of this. I wonder if there are any religious people here who don't really understand Jesus' identity. I wonder if there are any here living in a false narrative. You've assigned yourself something that's really not true. It's only true in your mind, but you just live there the whole time. You don't really know what reality is. And I wonder if anyone stared at their stuff so long they can, never, they can no longer see anything else. Jesus looks at these kinds of people, me, and says, I love you. I love you. I 
love you. Come. Lay down. Lay down the things that you're holding on to that you think are giving you life, but are killing you. They're dragging you down. And it seems like a, a big thing to do at that moment. But, but what opens up to you is beyond anything you could possibly imagine. So today, for all of those imperfectly following Jesus, who've trusted Jesus, we say, come, come and remember how much he loves you. Remember that he wants you to let some things go. And you might just think in your mind, when you get up, I'm, I'm going to leave something here that I don't want to come back to. Something that's got a hold of me, and I need to let that go. You know what it is, because the Holy Spirit's talking to you about it. If you don't know Jesus, then maybe you're going to leave in worse condition than you came. You're going to, I would want you to think about what do you possess that maybe possesses you? Is there eternal life? How would you get it? Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning. It's July 1st. The sun's out. We live in a beautiful city. And whether we're from Philadelphia or we've walked here from across the street, we've all entered into this room for this divine appointment to hear about your conversation with this man and for you to actually be having a conversation with us in our souls. So I pray that you would take these few moments for believer or non to think about eternal life, to consider Jesus, to, to let go of the things that are possessing our souls and trust in you. Or we know that on the night that you were betrayed, you took a cup and you said, I'm going to spill my blood for your life. I'm going to make a new covenant where I look at you and love you and bring you home. I'm going to give you my body. And every time we get together, we remember this so that we remember the grace and mercy of Christ. Would you take these elements and bless your people in a supernatural way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.